A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I am your host, Cheryl Ann Amendola. I am very glad that you are with me today after what to me felt like a really long break in episodes. Uh, the fall was very long. We had a field trip to Williamsburg that I planned for 94 of my very best eighth grade friends. And then, of course, we were getting back into the swing of school that hasn't been quote unquote normal for a really long time. So it was a challenging fall. I hope all of you did really well. I feel like I came out of the fall uh, stronger than ever, and I am really glad to be back with you. Um, today, I have a special guest, Lindsay Lyons. I'm really excited to talk to her uh, because her lens of viewing education is through the lens of social justice, which I hold near and dear to my heart. And anytime I can get tips on how to bring more social justice pieces into my classroom or give them to you so that we can work together as an educational community to push that through our students. I'm a happy camper. So Lindsay Lyons is an educational justice coach who helps schools and districts co-create feminist anti-racist curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. A former New York City public schools teacher, she holds a PhD in leadership and change and is the founder of the blog and podcast Time for Teachership. She believes the secret sauce of educational equality is student voice. I love that you use the term secret sauce, and we're going to discuss that later. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thanks, Cheryl Ann. Would you mind telling the audience a little bit more about yourself? This way we can get to know you before we really get down and into the social justice part. Absolutely. So I guess the brief bio would be never wanted to be a teacher because my parents were teachers and then became a teacher. <laughs> And realized that I, in, in college, my dual majors were gender, women's studies and sociology. And so I really wanted to make the world a better place, pursue, you know, this feminist, anti-racist like worlds that we all would live in. And I initially wanted to start by helping survivors of intimate partner violence. And then I realized like, I actually, my, my heart is actually in like the, before it happens, like I want to prevent it from even happening. I don't want to support people once it's happened. Like that's where my gift is going to be. And so I realized education and young children is kind of like where I I want not young, young children, but like high school age children is where I really wanted to do my work and have that work be impactful and make a lasting impact. And so, yeah, taught for, for about seven years in New York City public schools, got to teach a feminist course as an elective for three years. And then it's like the actual core literacy course and just through the content of like gender women studies for four years and then became a coach. And I'm now doing my own thing, which is really fun. Wow. That your course sounds sounds fascinating. I would, I would love to be able to teach something, something like that in my school. My kids are uh, eighth grade. They're still a little on the younger side, but um, your background is awesome. Um, <laughs> so I want to jump into it for our audience because I am really yeah. interested always in bringing social justice pieces into my classroom. As a history teacher, there are a lot of really great places where connections can be made, especially through the civic education lens, but also through uh, through the historical lens as well. And then if we have some of our elementary teachers uh, who are teaching social studies, Lindsay is going to discuss how to bring this, uh, bring the social justice to all levels. Um, but before we even start, start, can you define what social justice in the classroom is? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been playing, the researcher in me has been playing around with like, what are the concepts that underlie this idea? And so I think I've kind of landed on one, there's a foundational kind of culture or mindset of partnership. 
And so when I say partnership, I mean like between the students and the teachers. And I think that obviously extends to to family and leaders and all of that, but but a true partnership where teachers believe in their gut that like the students have something to teach them and that we do better when we partner with students instead of kind of teach at students. And that, that can be really hard because when I think about teacher school, right? Like there was a little bit of that, like student voice is important, but very much it was design your curriculum first and then deliver it to students. And it was never like this co-creation or this true partnership. And so I think that's a kind of at the foundation of what I think about injustice in terms of pedagogy and just like mindset towards the work. And then I also think the pedagogy is really one of student voice. So I think I get this from um, Street Data, the book Street Data, which I absolutely love by Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan, who talk about the pedagogy of student voice and a look for being 75% of class time is students actually talking and grappling. And I just love that there's a number to associate with that. Like, what does this actually look like? Um, Paired with, you know, like they're working on meaningful assessments where their work has an impact beyond the class and eyes beyond the teacher. And so how do we get their work um, that I would say is usually activist work? Like it actually takes what they do and learn and the skills they develop and actually changes the community for the better in some way or on an issue that they care about. And then also as they're learning, the fourth kind of pillar is the content. So how do they see themselves and windows, you know, the mirrors and windows uh, from Rudine Sims Bishop? How do they see both experiences and backgrounds of people who are not like them and also see mirrors of their own experiences and backgrounds and identities um, in the actual texts that we choose to use and teach with? So if you're sitting in the audience, you might be thinking, wow, that sounds hard. And I can assure you that it's not. Um it just takes a new way of looking at your classroom. So, yeah. I mean, I deliver things all the time because that's part of my job. And I try to use different ways of teaching our students, giving our students experiences. And one of those, one of those is delivery. And a lot of us are doing that. But it wasn't until I actually flipped my classroom. And I don't mean flip my classroom and like give students material and then they teach it. I mean, like truly flipped it where I gave them a choice in what they were doing and learning and just kind of became a manager that I really saw a whole lot of growth and empowerment among our kids. Yeah, absolutely. So why should we as history and social studies strive for social social justice in the classroom? How does that connect to our subject? Yeah, I think I think history is a wonderful kind of mechanism because I constantly am thinking about how do I understand what is going on in the world right now? And I think students are too. I think everyone, like adults and students are like, what is happening? Why is this happening? You know, and I think one of the best ways to kind of have that conversation is to take a current event, take a topic that students are talking about. And of course, as you mentioned, Rachel, this is going to look different from like kindergarten to seniors, right? Like this is going to look very different. However, I think everyone sees their families are talking about this thing or the news is on and they see, you know, this piece. And so people of all ages, students of all ages are going to be kind of aware that something is going on in these different current events that are happening. And so then it's up to us as teachers to use our historical lenses, knowledge, our kind of age appropriate um, backgrounds and in terms of what that looks like to be able to say, okay, now let's figure out what in history helps us understand what's going on today. And so it actually feels then meaningful. I always try to design, I think once I flipped this, I didn't always do this, but once I kind of flipped the switch in my mind of let's design from the, the 
present to the past versus past to present. This was so much easier for me to do. It was so much more engaging for students. I remembered very distinctly. There was one day, uh, this, this is actually more common than one day, but this one day in, in particular, I was in a class that was about 40 students on the roster with a co-taught class. And we, the co-teacher and I looked at ourselves and, and it was like 30 minutes into the class and there was no one there, like not one student of the 40 students had actually shown up to class. And it was like, wow, we need to do something to make this more engaging. We need students clamoring to come to class because we can help them make sense of something that they're wondering about the world that's like important to them right now. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity as history educators that we have is to be able to be like, okay, where does this come from? Let's find the threads and let's bring it to life for today's purposes. And one of the big questions that we can always ask and draw upon is what do you wonder? I mean, yeah. every student wonders something. It's just we have to really open our minds because we might not always think that what the student is wondering is worthwhile or yeah. worth studying, uh, but they do. And yeah. um, and we're in the room for them. So Yep. That's <laughs> just it takes a lot of it takes a lot of mind shift, but once you're there and you see it happening, it's really cool. And I mean I also find too that uh, younger students come in with, I guess, like younger, younger social issues that they're looking at. Mm -hmm. Many of my younger students um, and then younger students that I've observed in our primary school are really, really focused on animals. And that's a great place to start. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about um, teaching tolerance. It used to be called, but now it's learning for justice. They have these standards that are, there's like the four quadrants and then they have each of the standards are banded. So it's like, what does this look like at the kindergarten through second grade level? What does this look like at the high school level? What does it look? So I think those are really, the K2 specifically are really focused on like fairness, right? Or things like these concepts that are so important and look maybe different, but have the same threads or the same themes, right? So maybe we talk with like fairness toward animals and the fairness toward your friends. And then it gets bigger and more systemic as we kind of grow up. So I think that's a really interesting point that like thinking about like, what is the thread? What is the theme? And what are those like immediate connections to their life in the moment um, that might not be quite structural, but they're like the interpersonal maybe is what we start with. And what's really great too, is if you are in a district where you're school is K to six or your school is K to eight, or you have if you're lucky to have everybody K to 12, you can also structure these projects with other teachers where you then have that thread running all the way through and your little kids can visit your middle school kids and your middle school kids can work with your little kids and they, they have, they can see each other and see what's going on that's in common. So your kindergarten students aren't necessarily going to go to your seniors project about menstrual equity, but your seniors can go to your kindergartners and help them with their project because they understand they've been all the way through. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a good point. And I think if I could just jump in really quickly to share like an example of my students projects in the past as high schoolers has been to go into elementary classrooms and teach kind of those, those primary concepts. And so that's a really great opportunity to, to have those high schoolers be the teachers, as you're saying, as their justice project, like this is a way to advance justice because often, you know, those elementary kids are going to look at those high school kids as being very cool and excited to have them in the room versus their teacher saying something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So if you wouldn't mind, can you go through social justice and maybe tell us what you feel like it looks like as a definition or through or through more examples? So if I'm an elementary school teacher, what does social justice look like in my classroom versus my seventh and eighth graders versus my colleagues, high school students? 
Yeah. So I think all of K through 12, I use the same framework to be able to coach educators to create like their units, for example. So I always use a unit design framework. And so I think from all of those pieces, right? So we're thinking about like the content that we're teaching. We're thinking about the project that students are doing, but we're also thinking about the pedagogy and that idea of partnership as kind of a core mindset. So all of that, I think first, I always try to start with like a, a unit arc. So what is that first lesson that's really going to hug people in? So that might be, I'm going to show, um, you know, this three minute video that aired on the news. And then I'm going to have a discussion about it with students in the form of a circle or something. Right. Um, or I'm going to show this like music video that's really popular right now, or, Oh, I'm going to, um, look at this storybook or this children's book. And then we're going to have a conversation in this, in this format. Um, but have like this, this kind of hook activity. And then I try to think about like, what are the ways that center student voices around these issues of justice that come up in that hook activity? Um, what are the core texts that we can study? So in a history classroom in like middle school, for example, you might be looking at maybe like one or two primary sources and digging in over several days, um, right? And in history, in maybe the high school class, maybe we're actually doing some, starting to do some research around some inquiry questions uh, where students have their computers and they're actually just kind of diving right in and looking up some different things. And then those are the texts that we look at. Um, in elementary, school, this might be kind of a curated, uh, like a primary source with some scaffolding questions or something where it might be a couple, um, a book set, right. Of, of children's books. We're kind of around and like, let's kind of pull these different themes from these different places, or let's interview someone who comes into the classroom, um, and just ask them some questions and they're the source of knowledge. And it might be an easier way to kind of transmit, um, knowledge or get, uh, inquiry questions answered in that mechanism. But I think having that, um, idea of how do we start with a hook? How do we then go to studying the core ideas or the core texts? Then how do we see how this shows up? I call them case studies, but how do we see how this shows up in different examples? So maybe we're studying the theme of fairness. So what does this look like when we look at fairness from a lens of race or the lens of gender or the lens of um, language, right? Or immigration status. And we, and we kind of look at these different cases. That's pretty basic one. That might be something that might be in elementary school. Um, but, you know, like, how do we see the cases come up? And we see this example in multiple scenarios. And then how do we give a lot of project time where students are grappling with, I always call it a driving question, but a driving question so that their answer to that driving question is actually taking action on an issue and making it better and then have ultimately a publishing opportunity. And so that arc stays the same for everybody and the process of coming up with a driving question and a publishing opportunity or, or a pro activist project or whatever you want to call it, um, I think stays the same no matter what. And then what changes is the, are the specific texts that we use and the specific driving question that utilizes language and themes that are going to be age appropriate. And for that, I would pull from something like the learning for justice standards. We're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to swap out this idea of like, you know, um, structural racism with this idea of fairness, right? And so we're kind of talking about the same themes, but we're changing that language to be more um, relevant to the age span. And then for publishing opportunities, um, yeah. you don't really have to go, how do I want to put this? It doesn't have to be huge. A public op right. publishing opportunity doesn't mean you take your second graders and you take all of their work and you put it in a, in a book and then you pass it out to the parents. That is not what that means. So uh, in, in my school, for example, sometimes our publishing opportunity is a community forum. So we invite members of our own community, members of the outside community, depending on what the project is, to come and listen to the students talk about the work that they did and talk about the experience of putting together an action plan. And really the publishing opportunity is part of their action plan um, yes. doing their project. Or 
in our elementary school, we do something called writing celebrations. And they do these for all kinds of different writing that students do. But you could ask members of the community or caregivers to come in and listen to students talk about their particular part of the project based on a writing or an artistic piece that they've done to explain what they now understand about the world around them. Students at our upper school level, we have we have an actual like book that we publish for students uh, of student work, but um, it's it's voluntary slash uh, you're chosen to be in said book. But we also have like it's kind of like a community fair where in the evenings the kids make posters or tribe boards or presentations about their projects, and um, community members can walk around and find out about that project. So publishing can be inviting people in to see, or it can also be, I'm going to invite the other sixth grade class to come in and see what my sixth grade has been doing. So you don't need to be intimidated by the publishing piece because the publishing piece is actually the really, really fun part because the kids get to show off what they've done. Absolutely. And I'll add too that sometimes the publishing opportunity is just like finding an existing platform. Like um, we always use in high school, there's the C-SPAN. I can't remember what it's called, student cam, I think. Mm -hmm. And so you can submit like a five minute documentary, students can work in groups. And so if we're already doing that project, I I backwards planned initially from that so that we could submit, but that's just a cool project you could do either way and then submit it or not submit it. But it's so cool because there's like a financial incentive at the end, like finding opportunities like that. It's like, Hey guys, do you want to win $10,000? Okay. Here's the project. And then then you have a little bit more hook (laughs) and then there's a possibility that it goes somewhere and maybe it doesn't, but there's this like authentic feel to it. Like I'm doing this because my voice deserves to be heard on a larger level. And then you get to be able to send it off and students actually get to have that opportunity to have judges review their work. And usually community members are really responsive too. So I mean, We've done projects where we have gone to our legislators' offices because the kids have been invited. If you call, most of the time they will call you back. Different non-government organizations in the community, they they have been involved with my students. So that's another place where they can really show off their work and then ask questions. So, I mean, the people who are doing the same work as your students want to inspire your students most of the time. So. I mean, it usually takes one phone call or one email to get the ball rolling and, and your students will feel so empowered by this too. They feel like they can do anything and that's exactly what we want. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And, and I, I think to your point about like, it, it doesn't have to be huge. It also could be like, how do you take action in our immediate school, right? Like how do you potentially propose, I've had students whose projects were like proposing a policy change to the principal or something, right? And and so it's like, you just have to connect to this person who already knows them, who already knows them by name. And they just have to have a 10 minute sit down and listen to the student's policy proposal and maybe ask some questions. And that's like an authentic opportunity that like really could create some massive change. And it's easy to connect those two people, right? So Yeah, and within your framework for elementary, middle and high school, Teachers can also include what level do we want to work on for our social justice project or for our social justice unit? Do we want to work on the school level because it's here and and it's appropriate for our students to be doing that? Do we want to work in our immediate neighborhood or our community? Do we want to work on the county level? Do we want to work on the state level? Do we want to work on the federal level? Um, it's your choice how you want to do it with your students and uh, and you can work with them to to help them. Um, go in a direction that's going to be fruitful and meaningful for them. 
Absolutely. And I think also you can tap into the networks in your school. So often I would find the best connections through like asking my staff, right? Asking colleagues and just being like, hey, what opportunities do you know of? Do you know of a person who specializes in this and would be able to come in and talk to or listen to students like inquiry questions? And I think there's so much richness in our networks that already exist that sometimes we just don't remember to like actually ask the people around us. (laughs) Yeah. Collaboration is a beautiful thing. Yeah. All right. So you say that the secret sauce is student voice. Can you explain why you believe that? Yeah, absolutely. So there is so much research and I I won't spend spend the whole podcast talking about all the research because I could go down a deep dive here. But I think there's so much richness in, in the possibilities when we engage student voice. So there's so much around like agency, competency, belonging, all these things increase when students have, and I'll, I'll kind of caveat this with a meaningful opportunity for student voice, right? So it's not just, um, you know, which one of these options on a choice board would you like to do to like, would you like to read this text or watch this video, right? Like, it's not like that kind of thing, which is, that's, I'm not knocking that. That's also great. But you know, it's, it's like, what do you want to do in the world, right? Like what, how do you make sense of this, uh, news cycle? How do you, um, like, what is it that you want to, to have an impact on, like in the next week and be a leader now versus like some distant future that we're preparing you for, right? Like, how can you do something today? These kinds of questions, like how you can be an integral part of like school policy and and things like that, even kindergartners, there's some really cool research on, on, um, I think it's first graders, um, who have designed their, their classroom spaces in a way that's like, this is what we need from the class teacher. And the teacher like designed, redesigned the space and had the students all help. Um, and they felt like, oh, wow, I made an immediate impact in just literally how my physical space was designed. So things that are meaningful to students and that have an immediate impact, um, there's so much research that says that kind of student voice is just going to be better for students emotionally, mentally, uh, relationally with other students and with adults. And um, their academic success ultimately increases. It also shows that they're going to be more likely to be civically engaged both in the present and in that distant future. So I think there's so much richness there in terms of like what actually happens when we do it well. In terms of how that looks, I always think of kind of two levels. So the classroom level in the actual classroom, how do we create activist projects, for example, and have students do this work? How do we also make sure that the first time we're asking students about a, a really intense, maybe high emotion injustice or justice topic isn't the first time we ever ask them to speak. So how do we first kind of build that culture, um, build a sense of belonging and like perceived psychological safety, which is, I, I would like to caveat to that. I often we hear declare a safe space, right? And you can't really declare a safe space, right? You have to create the conditions where each individual student is going to perceive safety or not. And so I think that's another kind of mindset shift that is, is required for the work. But when we do that, when we have students who are regularly spending 75% of the class time right, talking and grappling, now we've created the conditions to be able to have the tough conversations, the high emotion conversations, and to do the activist work of applying you know, whatever they're learning about in an authentic way. I mean, it's going to have all those amazing benefits. So that's like kind of the classroom piece. And then the other piece of that, my research was really around what does this look like in terms of policy? So how can leaders also support this work? So it's not just the classroom teachers who are doing the heavy lifting of student activism, but it's also like students are on leadership committees. Students are making policy decisions and like they're, they're part of um, curriculum committee and discipline committee and all the committees that exist. Like students are an integral part of those, um, which really requires us to rethink how often we do school and how we do policy. Audience, if you're not feeling inspired by now, I mean, I'll feel inspired for you. Um, I can't wait to get back into my classroom and spend 75 minutes of letting them grapple with things. Um, 
So before we go, Lindsay, do you have one suggestion or tip for teachers that can help them at least get started moving down a social justice path? Because we know Rome wasn't built in a day, but I'm a big believer in one small step at a time. Yes. Oh my gosh. So there are so many things, but I think if I had to choose one, uh, my favorite protocol that is a wonderful way to immediately make hit at least 75, if not like 90% of class time being students talking is circle protocol. And so I can actually share with you too. I'm sure we can have like a link in the show notes or something that I can share with you for, for our listeners. I have a whole guide that actually I designed for students to eventually be circle facilitators. So you could use it as a teacher, but then ultimately after you've used it a few times, students are usually very eager to jump in and facilitate a discussion, which is even more student voice and even more awesome. Um, But I would say start practicing maybe one protocol like that, that really gets you more comfortable in that facilitating student discussion role and less kind of sage on the stage teaching at, right? But really learning with. And then enabling you to also have that structure so well down and students know it so well that you can hand it over to the students to actually lead conversations about what's important to them, maybe bring in a current event, and then they facilitate the questions and process, um, you know, that event through that protocol. That's awesome and really exciting. And I'm happy to share. I can't wait to audience, you can check in the show notes and you can also check on my blog, www.teachinghistoryherway for all of the resources that uh, Lindsay has talked about from um, learning for justice all the way down to her uh, to her circle protocol, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for being on the episode today. I, I'm feeling so empowered already <laughs> to go back into my classroom and, uh, and adjust some of my lessons. Student voice and student choice are really important and representation is important and social justice brings all of those things together. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun, Joanne. And listeners, if you are interested, you can catch Lindsay on Lindsay Beth Lyons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-E-T-H-L-Y-O-N-S.com. She's a coach and she is a helper. She's got a calendar right on her website if you want to give her a call and chat with her. Um, I'm feeling very lucky and blessed that she was here today. And audience, I'm really, really lucky and blessed that you were here today too. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming back to listen all the time. If you would like to find me, you can find me on Twitter at History Her Way, or you can find me on Instagram at Teaching History Her Way, or on my website, www.teachinghistoryherway.com. Lindsay, where are you on social media? I am at Lindsay Beth Lyons everywhere except Twitter. I think that was too long. So Lindsay B. Lyons. Yes, Twitter shortened mine too. (laughs) All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time.